0: To
1: the first union in American history. Yeah! This is the sound of a union being born. And that voice is Chris Smalls. He's the guy who made it happen. This past April, workers at an Amazon warehouse on Staten Island voted to unionize. And it was a true David and Goliath story. This charismatic guy, Chris, was the leader of the organization effort. And he didn't even have an established union behind him. This warehouse was the first to unionize in Amazon's history. And this moment was seen by a lot of people as a turning point for Amazon and for the labor movement across the country.
2: My guess is that this victory in Staten Island will not only mean more organizing at Amazon facilities around the country, I think it's going to be a shot in the arm for the labor movement. By the way, Amazon, here we come.
1: In the past year, at companies like Google and Starbucks and Apple, unions have been gaining steam. And at Amazon, that first big victory seemed to signal the start of something. But
2: that's not the whole story. The first warehouse where they win the vote on April 1st is a big fulfillment center, a giant, massive facility with 8,300 people in it called JFK Eight. So when it looked like they were going to win, I immediately ran up to New York on April 1st to see Chris and get a sense of who he was. And so that was my initial thought is we'll do a profile of Chris Smalls. And then as time went on, I started to realize the big fight was for this next warehouse that's literally across the street. And that's a smaller facility called LDJ 5. It has about 1,600 workers in it. This is Greg Jaffe. He's been
1: reporting for The Post all year on this growing labor movement. And while he went to New York to tell a story about a big union victory, it ended up being followed by a big loss. And the realization that while the workers had won a battle with Amazon, it was just the beginning of the war.
2: The main question I was trying to answer is, could this movement spread? It was so built around this one warehouse and around Chris, who has this just, he's a bright guy with a magnetic personality, but could it spread when there was no Chris Smalls or when Chris Smalls wasn't at the center of it?
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 23rd. Today, Greg spoke with producer Sabby Robinson about these two fights on Staten Island and what they say about what it takes to win a union vote especially when you're up against a trillion-dollar company that will go to incredible lengths to defeat you. And we'll hear from Greg about what this Amazon fight could signify for the future of the labor movement across the U.S. And before we start, we should say here, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos also owns The Washington Post. Okay, Sabi will take it from here.
3: So let's start with Chris, because as you said, he's this really magnetic figure and seemed to have a massive role in why the first warehouse was successful when it came to unionizing. Can you tell me a bit about who he is and how he got involved?
2: Yeah. So he was an Amazon worker. He'd been with the company almost five years. Right around the beginning of COVID, there started to be some COVID cases in his warehouse and he led a protest a walkout and uh, that garnered some media attention and that upset Amazon and led Amazon to fire him. And so after that, he essentially spent a year on a crusade staging protests outside Jeff Bezos' mansions. And then eventually they ran out of mansions (laughs) and uh, Chris set up outside the bus stop and just decided to organize a union on his own. And I think he thought he could do it better than established unions could, that he understood the workers better, that he understood their needs. So he just he and a a bunch of his friends who had traveled with him to Bezos's mansions decided they were going to do this on their own.
3: And I mean, I can imagine that Chris is up against a lot you know, Amazon is this giant company, it's very powerful. So can you just walk me through the way Amazon has addressed unions in the past and
2: what their tactics have been? Sure. So Amazon is is fervently anti-union. I don't think they want their workers to be unionized, in part because they cycle through people exceedingly fast. So, you know, the turnover in the Staten Island warehouse work, Chris was fired, it was 100 to 150% a year. And to have that kind of, yeah, so the the entire workforce is turning over every eight months. You know, the turnover in those facilities is intentional, I think, in part because they don't have to continue to give people raises over time. After five years, Amazon will essentially buy you out if you're an hourly worker, give you a lump sum never to work for Amazon again. So this is not a long-term relationship that they're trying to build with their workforces. And that makes it really hard to unionize. So Chris was, had that against him. He also had, uh, you know, it's a trillion dollar company. He had no money. They were going to hire big law firms. They were going to hire anti-union consultants to come in and talk to the workers um, and convince them not to unionize. They were going to go after him. So he had a lot, of, uh, a lot of disadvantages.
3: How has Amazon responded to accusations about their efforts to undermine unions?
2: This is what the the Amazon spokeswoman uh, said to me in a statement, um, that it's up to the workers whether they want to unionize. It's their choice. We want them to be able to choose. You know, I take that with a grain of salt. I mean, they were paying anti-union consultants were getting paid as much as $3,200 a day for a single consultant. And so if you're paying someone $3,200 a day, you really don't want a union. You don't want the workers to unionize.
3: Mm, whoa. So it sounds like there was a lot piled up against Chris. But even so, he was successful at getting enough workers on board to vote to unionize at, at this first warehouse. What was his strategy to do that and what made it work? So
2: I think the biggest thing he did and the, the smartest thing he did was just set up outside the factory. So he, because he was fired and was no longer an Amazon employee, he wasn't allowed on their property. But there's a bus stop right across from the warehouse where he was fired, literally right across the street. So he set up at that bus stop. He put up a tent and he was there, gosh, you know, 11, 12 hours a day for the better part of 11 months, just constantly there. And if he wasn't there, other people from his movement were there. (laughs) They're grilling, they're playing music, passing out free weed sometimes. And I think the goal of all of that was to build a a culture and a community which didn't exist in that Amazon warehouse, you know, where your every move is surveilled, where there's constant turnover. There's no sense of community. There's no sense of workforce. So he was going to build that at the bus stop, a sense of, you know, who we are as part of the Amazon labor union. And you know one interesting thing about Chris is he's a former rapper and musician so he used to put on his own shows. Mm. I mean the organizing he would do would be to throw house parties and get people to come to his concerts. And that's a form of organizing in itself. You're trying to get people to come to something, you're trying to get people to buy into something and so he was really good at that. I don't think he had he'd done anything political at all.
3: Hmm. Why did Chris decide to not try to reach out to these, you know, other bigger labor organizations for help with this fight? Like, why do you think he kind of kept it contained to him and his group of organizers?
2: Yeah. So one of the trips he makes before he starts it is he goes down to Bessemer where there's a large scale effort to unionize the factory down there with one of the, one of the big unions. And when he's down there, it's very controlled by the union there. He wants to help and they don't want his help. Um, they don't really let workers talk to the press. How come? I think they wanted to keep control of the narrative, the union did. Um, they felt like, you know, this is a sensitive operation. We don't want people saying things that are going to get us in trouble. We don't want people saying things that would be controversial with other other workers at the plant. It's sort of like in politics, like the big campaign that controls everything versus the kind of insurgent campaign that doesn't have as many rules. And I think Chris thought wait a minute, I don't need outside organizers to help me do this. I know these workers and these factories better than they do. I'm more capable of doing this than they are.
0: You know, they think that we're young, which we are. Most right. of the organizers are young. So they just thought that, you know, affiliate with them would be better. And, I, and that didn't make any sense because it's like, why would it be better if you guys came to us? <laughs> it wasn't the other way around.
2: And I think he realized not having a union would allow him to take some chances and do some things that he would never be allowed to do had he affiliated with a large union. The notion of passing out weed at a bus stop, you know, that never happened with a big union. But it's something he can do, and he knows a lot of those workers. So he understood the culture, and he understood that doing it on his own was going to give him some freedoms that he wouldn't have if he had with a big union,
0: you know, my story pretty much uh, resonated with a lot of folks uh, nationwide, and um, they they felt that this is an important fight, and um, I think they just gravitated to that. You know, the fact that this is something, although challenging, um, this is something that is very possible um, if we just come together.
3: And so once they're successful at this first Amazon warehouse, what happens to Chris and to the visibility of this movement?
2: So they win on April 1st. On March 30th, nobody thinks they're going to win. By March 31st, they've counted about half the ballots and they're up by a couple hundred votes. And people are like, oh my God, these guys are going to do it. Then on April 1st, his life just completely changes after they win.
1: First, for Amazon, workers at a Staten Island warehouse have voted Friday, just moments ago. We got the final results to join a union. It may be one of the biggest wins for organized labor in a generation. And it was a battle that was fought tooth and nail.
2: His phone is ringing constantly. You know, it's media, both U.S. and international.
4: The man who took on Amazon and won, Chris Smalls, welcome to
0: The Daily Show. Thank you. Thank you, man. What an insane story. Like, it's
2: politicians he- from Washington. It's other unions. They want to be affiliated with him. They want to make sure he succeeds, but they also want a piece of the pie for themselves. And then it's just random workers from all over the country who who want to talk to him and want him to come to their factories. And Hollywood celebrities, you know, the one of the stars of Succession and Spider-Man 2 was oh coming up. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just constant.
3: It must be exciting and overwhelming, I guess, at the same time, you know, to have that much visibility and at the same time feel like you are the center of something that is so large and that so many people are looking at as... Inspiration.
2: Yeah, a lot of people have their hopes tied to you. That's absolutely true.
3: So they moved on to this next warehouse. What happened to the movement then?
2: So, you know, initially, I think Chris doesn't quite realize how much pressure he's under, how much work there is to do now that they've won. And winning creates its own pressures. It creates the media, certainly, which is constantly, you know, everyone wants to talk to him. When they win, they have no office space, they need more lawyers. They need more accountants. They need to put systems and processes in place. He needs an assistant to just answer his phone, which he doesn't have. He's got to travel to Washington to talk to people. And so all of those pressures are coming down on him. And so when they first win, I think he thinks that uh, the second warehouse, which is called LDJ5, that he's just set up the, the bus stop again and will run the same play. But increasingly, he doesn't have the the time to be at the bus stop anymore. There's just too much stuff to do. I mean, in addition to not having office space, they don't even have a bank account. They have a GoFundMe that they have to withdraw money from, but there's no bank account to fund what they're doing. And so, uh, you know, he thinks that they're going to start up at the tent. He keeps, you know, for a few days, he says, we'll set up the tent, we'll be out there, we'll back you up, but it just doesn't happen. So the organizing effort falls on a whole different crew. And a lot of them are kind of young idealists, people in their early 20s. Chris doesn't have money to pay them, um, so he tells them, just get jobs at Amazon at the factory here in Staten Island. That's their source of income, and we'll organize from the inside.
4: In terms of being an organizer in my future in organizing, I wanted to see a campaign through from beginning to end to, to get the full experience.
2: Maddie Wesley is the main organizer for LDJ5. Really, really smart young woman, 23 years old. She graduated from Wesleyan while she was at Wesleyan. She and the lawyer that Chris had found over Twitter, a guy named Seth Goldstein had worked organizing the janitors and cafeteria workers at Wesleyan. So she'd had some experience there. She graduates from college, does some work, democratic organizing work for campaigns, largely as a volunteer, and has a job lined up with Unite Here to organize hotel workers in South Florida. Seth Goldstein, the Twitter lawyer, calls her up and says, hey, you've got to move up here. This is the kind of movement we've dreamed about. You know, it's a grassroots worker-organized movement. Uh, And so she comes up to do that. But her background's completely different than Chris. She looks at a company like Amazon, which is making massive profits during the pandemic. And somebody like Jeff Bezos, who's growing wealthier and wealthier and wealthier throughout the pandemic um, and thinks that there's something broken here. And so she wants to try and fix it. And Chris and his movement become a mechanism for her to try and fix it.
3: So how did that play out with Maddie taking the reins? Did she try the same strategies as Chris, you know, going down to the bus stop? Like what was her strategy to try to get people on board?
2: They do try the same strategies, and they essentially run as close to the same playbook as they can. So in December of 2020, when they're in the middle of the JFK 8 vote, one of the big wins they get is they get the right to set up in the break rooms inside the warehouse during their off hours and to pass out food and flyers. And she builds a very good team of people who, friends she had made in the year that she works at the warehouse. Most of them are people who are in their early 20s. So I'm...
4: I just kind of started sitting with a group of, like, people my age. Um, I wasn't, like, planning on recruiting any specific person or anything like that. But I just, um, I picked a group and figured, like, you know, start making relationships with all these people. Like, maybe I can turn some of them into organizers. And that's kind of what happened.
2: They're able to get some older workers to also then join in as the campaign goes on who are, you know, talking to their fellow workers, trying to to convince them. And that's the main thing that, that she does. I think the hardest part is convincing the workers to fight for themselves. The one thing I found is that the Amazon workers, it's an incredibly demoralized workforce. You know, the turnover's so great that people are just not inclined to fight. They'd rather just leave than fight. And so... Convincing people that this job is worth fighting for, that they're worth fighting for is in some ways the hardest thing. And so when you see somebody like Chris, who's parked in this tent across from the warehouse where he was fired from two years ago, who fought and fought and fought with Amazon, if he's willing to fight for himself, then we should be willing to fight for ourselves. I think one thing Maddie, who's passionate and smart um, and empathetic and um, a hard worker— Uh, She doesn't have Chris's story, you know, as we were just discussing. Her story is very different. So it's harder for her to make that, to convince the workers that this is worth fighting for, this job is worth fighting for. And so she's really worried
4: I would get so anxious i would have panic attacks about like having taken on too much responsibility like and you know i am young like i'm only i'm only 23 and i'm the treasurer of the freaking amazon labor union
2: and she's calling chris smalls on a couple of occasions and saying hey you have to get out here in part she's worried she knows that the anti union consultants inside amazon are spreading rumors and in some cases lies about Chris that you know he's in this for the money he's going to use um, their dues once they start paying them to buy himself sports cars and fancy clothes. Um, he's got a vendetta against the company. Um, Amazon declined to comment when I asked them um, about the tactics that the anti-union consultants um, used at the LDJ5 warehouse.
4: They, you know, made a bunch of lies about like the money and la blah, 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 like, oh, you're, you know, you're gonna give them millions of dollars in dues, blah, 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 you know.
2: Some of these rumors are also targeting Maddie, that, you know, Chris has bought her a Mercedes, that they're irresponsible with the money. These people can't be trusted. Uh, that they're inexperienced.
4: It's about the workers. And at the end of the day, it's it's Amazon's narrative that puts me and Chris um, at the forefront of it. It's It's Amazon's narrative that, you know, with the rumors and stuff, like isolating us as people instead of focusing on the larger issues and the larger movement and about like the fact that this is a worker-led movement. It's not a me and Chris-led movement.
2: And so she wants Chris up there to be at the bus stop, to be able to talk to the workers. Like, If you've got concerns, you can talk to the head of the union. He's down there at the bus stop. Go talk to him in person. But Chris is just not there. And that's not to say that Chris is shirking responsibilities. He's just got a million demands on his time. And so even when he is at the bus stop, and I can remember being there with him, You know, he was handing out ALU, Amazon Labor Union, lanyards and stuff. Um, You know, he's constantly on the phone. It's media who's calling. It's his lawyer, the Amazon Labor Union lawyer who's calling, politicians who are calling. And so he's fielding those calls. And he's not in the same space that he was when he was at the tent before. So Maddie can see that this thing is, is slipping away, I think
4: he's got a lot on his plate and he's the face of this movement and everything that happens reflects back on him as a person obviously it's stressful and not only that but he was thrown into the spotlight really really quickly but you know i also think that he's got some time he you know i think he deserves some time to figure out like who he is as a leader given this win and given the sudden like publicity
3: Did she ever have a moment where she thought, well, maybe we should reach out to one of these, you know, bigger labor organizations and get more help, you know, maybe not take the same route that Chris did and not do
2: it as much on their own? You know, I ask that question a lot. So after the first win, obviously the big labor unions are desperate to help and they want to affiliate with the Amazon labor union, like a formal affiliation. And Chris is really reluctant to do that. And I think so is Maddie. And and they realize that, you know, once they affiliate, they lose control. Once they affiliate, it doesn't feel like a worker-led grassroots movement. They need, like, authentic voices who can speak to the workers and understand exactly what the workers are going through because they're going through it in their lives. And that's, like, something you can't buy.
0: So I want to say thank you all for coming out here today. <laughs> Sunday.
2: Yeah. So they have a rally on the um, 24th of April. Voting starts the 25th of April. It's like their dream lineup of people who come out for this rally, you know, who weren't interested in them at all before the first vote. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comes out and speaks.
4: And so what happened here, out here, right, that you guys did in Staten Island
2: was just the beginning. It was the first domino to fall. Um, uh, Bernie Sanders comes out and speaks. Working people
1: are sick and tired of falling further and further behind while billionaires like Bezos become much richer.
2: This is right outside the warehouse, 50 yards from the, the front door of the warehouse. All these big labor unions. So it's this big, impressive rally with all these impressive people. And the one thing that became clear to me is, like, none of that matters. The workers in this warehouse, some of them wandered by out to the rally, but most of them had nothing to do with it. Their lives are too busy. And these big politicians like Sanders and AOC just don't mean anything to them.
1: After the break, we hear about what happened at the second vote. We'll be right back.
4: So you would think that having AOC
1: and Bernie Sanders throw a rally for your union vote would basically guarantee victory. But as Greg told our producer Sabi, the reality was a lot more complicated. Here's Sabi again. So this rally
3: happens and then it's the vote. What happens there?
2: The rally happens on the 24th. The voting starts on the 25th and essentially runs for a week. Then on May 2nd, they're going to count the votes. The counting on this time only takes a day. The morning the counting starts, Chris is actually in Detroit. Um, He's getting an award from the uh, NAACP there, a Great Expectations Award, and his plane gets delayed on the way home. So he's not there in the morning, and uh, Maddie and her team of four or five people, along with some of the organizers from JFK 8, show up for the counting. The counting happens indoors inside in a in a closed room. Amazon's lawyers are there and then Maddie and a couple members of her team are there watching the counting. And it's very clear early on that they're going to lose and lose badly. Within 45 minutes to an hour, they're down 100 votes and then the the spread increases over the next three hours that it takes to, to count the votes. Maddie slips out kind of unnoticed. There's a clutch of press waiting in front and then everyone in the press Core, who's sort of waiting around, is waiting for Chris to get back from Detroit. I think the union wants him to speak or to be the primary voice.
0: I'm proud of the workers, you know. I'm proud that, once again, these organizers came together months ago and they brought a trillion dollar company to the brink of an election, you know. That's all we could do as organizers and workers is is get the co-workers a chance and opportunity to vote. We did that. It didn't go in our favor. And there's plenty of reasons to dispute, but... uh, at the end of the day, they did that themselves. No, you know, um, can't take that away from
2: them. And so the first question for the press is, well, what's the next warehouse? Where are you going to go next? What about those hundred warehouses who've called you? Um, and Chris kind of isn't entirely sure what to say, it seems like, because it takes a lot to organize one of these warehouses. And he's exhausted. I think he knows his team's exhausted, so... I think the first thing he says is, "Hey, let us take a pause here. We're going to keep fighting. We need to figure out what happened at the second warehouse. Why we didn't win."
0: We gotta. We gotta understand at the end of the day, we all we all human beings, and um, I don't want to put too much on my organizers' mental health. You know, we need a break. You know, we've been organizing. I've been organizing for the last two years since I've been fired. These organizers been organizing uh, for over a year now, so they need a mental break. You know, we don't want to just keep jumping into campaign, campaign, campaign. Um, and I think we'll reassess some things and we'll get right back
2: in the fight. I in it to, I mean, they're flying the plane and building the plane at the same time. And so they just, I think they feel overwhelmed and are, are struggling to figure out exactly what happened. And I think Maddie is as well. I think by the end, she, I think she told me the night before she thought it would be a coin flip as to whether they won or lost. And then she can tell the next day that it was you know, they lost pretty handily. So I think she's struggling to figure out what what happened.
4: We did what we had to do and we dealt with it like it wasn't ideal for us. Like, you know, we still are like twenty-two, twenty-three, a bunch of really young people and yeah, we did what we could.
3: I'm I'm curious just what you think these two efforts show about what is necessary to be able to unionize at a company like Amazon?
2: It's it's tough. I've been wrestling with this question because I think it's a really important one. You know, unionization, even through the pandemic, the percentage of work, unionized workers in America has continued to fall year after year. Since the 1970s, it's continued to fall. And even in 2021, the percentage of unionized workers has continued to fall in America despite the sort of great resignation despite people reassessing their lives people were quitting rather than unionizing and I think when Chris first wins at that first plant, people think, oh my gosh, this guy has cracked the code. He's done the impossible. These worker-led movements, this is the way to do it. This is the way to go. This thing is going to spread across the country. Part of the reason that he's getting calls from reporters all over the country and politicians is they think he's like discovered the magical formula here, and now this thing is going to spread like wildfire. I think what we learn from the failure at the second warehouse is that this has Potential, it's important, but it's really, really hard. It's really, really labor intensive. It not only requires somebody like Chris, but it requires somebody like Chris sitting outside a bus stop for 11 months. Can you imagine? You know, he's not being paid for any of that time. He's sitting out there breathing bus fumes for 11 months in a tent. And that requires an incredible amount of dedication, dedication incredible amount of maybe anger uh, to do something like that. But the one thing that comes through to me is like, this is not going to happen quickly. It's not going to happen easily. And it might fizzle out. And the, the secret sauce to it isn't necessarily more money or paid organizers. I think those things can help. And I do think it's... If it's going to succeed, the big unions are going to have to find a way to team up with these grassroots efforts to make them kind of more sustainable.
3: So what's next? Like, what did you hear from Maddie and Chris? Do you feel like this is going to be the model they use or is it kind of a regrouping and rethinking of how this
2: all went? I think it's this is the model that they'll use. I think they're going to have to adapt it to other places and figure out how they adapt it to other places. So that's big. Can this thing spread? And the other thing they need to do is they, they're going to sit down and contract negotiations with Amazon on the warehouse, one warehouse they want with the 8,300 workers. I think those negotiations are going to be really tough. I mean, the one thing Amazon can do is that they can draw those out forever. They're supposed to negotiate in good faith. I don't know that that will happen. Right now, Amazon is challenging that first vote at the first warehouse. You know, they they faulted Chris for handing out free weed and said he was bribing workers. Chris is hiring lawyers who will help with the, the contract negotiations. But my gut is that Amazon will drag it out as long as they can before they agree to a contract. So even as Chris is negotiating this new contract, fighting to ensure that the wind holds in court, he's also got to keep the workers on his side make sure that they don't get dis- disillusioned over the next year and vote to decertify the union that just won. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, they need to win other warehouses because I think, you know, it's just a, a a fact of physics that the more warehouses you have, the more pressure you can put on Amazon to win uh, a good contract. So there's just a tremendous amount of work to do over the next next year for him. And for them all, for Chris and Maddie. And I guess the one thing I will say is I think they're both realize how hard it's gonna be, but they're both committed to it. What do you think this looks like five years, ten years from now? What does success look like?
0: Uh, hopefully we won't be the only unionized building. And like, you know, secondly, hopefully there'll be a nationwide contract. You know, under the ALU. You know, we wanna hopefully go nationwide with it. And um I have a contract that represents all the workers for the Amazon in the country.
2: Are you hoping you'll still be involved with it?
0: In some capacity, yeah. I mean, is it something I want to do forever? Probably not, but, uh, you know, I definitely want to make sure that it's done the right way.
2: Why not forever?
0: Why not? (laughs) Because of my mental health. (laughs) You know, uh, I think that, uh, you know, everything has an expiration date, you know, and I don't know when that is, but, uh, you know, I'll do it. I'll do this work for as long as I'm needed.
1: Greg Jaffe is a national reporter for The Post. Anna Betts contributed reporting to the story. Sabi Robinson is a producer for Post Reports, and she produced this story. It was edited by Rena Flores and Maggie Penman. Sean Carter mixed the show. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
4: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better-functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours— in our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're gonna learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.